One of the most interesting people we met was a man called Alistair Lukies. We met him at the Shard, which is one of the tallest buildings in London, 30 floors above the ground with magnificent views all around in this incredible restaurant. We met him with his friend and business partner, Sam Tidswell Norrish, and both of them are actually planning a trip to South Africa soon. Now, Alistair's a pretty interesting guy because he founded Monetize in 2003, and Monetize was recognized as a technology pioneer by the World Economic Forum. In June of 2007, Alistair led the company's demerger from a bigger group called Morse, and it's listing on the London Stock Exchange's AIM market. He was also appointed as a business ambassador to the Prime Minister for the financial services industry by the UK government, and today he acts as the sole business ambassador for fintech. He was awarded a CBE, which is a commander of the most excellent order of the British Empire, and that was for services to mobile banking and charity in 2014. He was also named Entrepreneur of the Year in the 2011 Growing Business Awards. So, here it is, Alistair Lukies. You you were one of the first people to see the opportunity presented by mobile technology for banking. Well, my co-founder was. I'm just the street fighter. I'm just, well, I'm just the hustler. Well, I'm well. the visionary. <laughs> I, I met a very, very clever guy who worked for Vodafone, um, who was their chief architect. And he has um, the, the, the tough job of writing the thesis for the third generation of mobile rollout. So... Chris Gent, who was running Vodafone at the time, had to justify why the government should give him a license for 3G, even though they were the incumbent, even though they had to write a £7 billion check, they still had to explain to the politicians why they should be allowed 3G, so you obviously need a corporate social responsibility story around that, and so part of that thesis was what could we use mobile phones for more than just text and voice and the right. 3Gs as it was... People thought 3G was, well, it is, of course, a spectrum, but mm-hmm. yeah. people you say it's girls, gaming, and gambling. That's what the 3G <laughs> stand for. So they needed to point out that there was more to it than that. And so Steve was a very clever technology guy, and he'd worked out that if you look at the old SIM cards in your phone, mm. it's identical to your chip the, the on chip your on card. The bank so you've got the same public card, key yeah. infrastructure, you've got the same ability to encrypt. There was actually a, a South African company called Prism, which then got bought by NetOne, who'd done quite a lot of the pioneering work around the LTS layer, which is a new security layer you can build in software. It encrypts at the same level as hardware. So Steve had, had done a lot of the thinking about the technical side, but then you've got the challenge of how on earth do you persuade banks and mobile operators to work together when they see each other as competitors, and that's where I came in. I'd done some lobbying for some of the bigger banks before in a company I built called ePolitics, and so we looked at where we could find common infrastructure. No bank was prepared to bet their future on what was then a pretty basic brick phone. They were worried about security and all that This was the early 2000s? 2001, yeah. Yes, thank you. And so we went to uh, a firm called Link, which is the, a bit like BankServe in South Africa. So we went to Link and said, look, you've got a data center which has a common infrastructure that enables ATMs to talk to each other. So mm-hmm. if I'm a Barclays customer, I can go to an HSBC ATM and get money out, which you couldn't do in the 90s, and people have forgotten that. You had to go to your own ATM. Right. And, um, and they were surcharging at the ATMs and all the rest of it. And so they built Link, which was a scheme like Visa or MasterCard, common rules, common standards, 
and so we said look if we built a black box that went in alongside your black box and it spoke mobile could we turn the mobile phone into a mini ATM obviously you can't bring cash but you'd be able to check balances and you'd be able to move money between accounts or the rest of it but this is long before what we take for granted now no smartphones no app stores or anything else so we worked for a, for a number of years on doing that um, got it proven and then of course started to understand the impact it could have in emerging markets where everyone had mobile phones so M-Pesa was born in a village near me um, yeah well it was born in the UK but so was it Kenya, yeah, yeah. in a very small village near where I live with some people that we were doing some work with and they saw what we were doing and said well you know Safaricom 80% owned by Vodafone in Kenya has all of these street agents that go out every week into the towns and villages take some cash off the usually the village chief or mm-hmm. you know, some of the senior members of the village and then give everyone airtime. so why wouldn't you use that same infrastructure for financial services um, and that was the beginning of what we call fusion the fusion industry so taking bank infrastructure fusing it into a new technology like mobile making sure everyone sticks to their core competency so mobile operator does distribution bank does security risk management rather than everyone trying to do everyone else's job um, or, or viewing each other as competition. Correct. And so that's what began the mobile money journey. And then we had a good run um, for, for, you know, a bit of, bit of luck and a bit of judgment. Um, and we're a public company and we peaked out at about 2 billion market cap, with about 1,700 staff around the world. Did a lot of stuff in Nigeria, uh, India, what we call sort of the hybrid markets where you've got a big bank population but also a big unbanked population. Indonesia, we created a service that enabled people to text each other through BlackBerry Money, uh, through BBM, BlackBerry Messenger. Mm-hmm. They can send money to each other across the 70 Indonesian islands and then get money out of an ATM without having a card. So lots and lots of very cool stuff and got to meet lots of world leaders and talk about it. And we always knew that, that we would be a sort of pioneering first generation of it. And now it's become fairly mainstream. And that led to the conversations about fintech and how the UK, after the 2008 financial crisis, yeah, how on earth do you keep talking about the future of banking if you're a politician without getting shot? Because there's just no positive stories to come from it. And so, um, I, with the then Prime Minister actually on the way to, to see Nelson Mandela and um, visit Zuma uh, as part of a trade mission, we got Sorry talking. Yeah, we got talking about. Um, yeah, there was one part of that trip that was lovely, and one part of that trip that was less lovely. And um, we got talking about how we would move the conversation on from banking because we still have 37% of US financial services industry and it was 19% of our GDP. So even though the banks had behaved badly and society was angry with them, you couldn't shut down what is a very important part of our industry. So we started talking about what the future of banking looks like and that's where FinTech came from and we created the Sandbox Project Innovate so that we could help smaller companies that wanted to work with bigger companies scale up so that they could be bank grade and it's not crazy for ringtones, we're talking about people's money so that was important. So we set some of the new standards like we'd done in the early days and um, created a trade body called Innovate Finance which I chaired for a couple of years which I launched with George Osborne, the Chancellor. Mm-hmm. That then can be a voice for not just the big banks but also for the tiny Fred in a shed who's trying to build a fintech company. So we end up creating right touch regulation so it's not too much stick and not too much carrot. Right. And then we've got open banking to come out of that and you can adopt things like GDPR around data. And so we fuse all that together, that's why we call it fusion. And what you end up with is the next generation of financial services platforms, but they've been built with banks and startups and within a regulatory environment. So we're shortcutting a lot of, you know, Visa took 58 years to get to where it is right. today because it was all bank owned and done behind the firewall. Now we're trying to do that stuff in a 
a much more transparent way and, and hopefully build some technologies that give us better transparency, less cyber risk, less fraud risk around the world. So it's a big ask, but you know, the UK needs all the friends it can get at the moment and we're doing fintech bridges with countries that uh, we, we, we've not turned our back on, but because of our role in the European Union, haven't been able to have one-on-one -on -one relationships with, so Canada, Australia, uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, China. So we have fintech bridges, Great. where we're saying if you're a fintech entrepreneur in Cape Town, mm -hmm. we want you to think of London as your next port of call, and we want to make it really easy. So how do we make sure the regulation is easy, the visa program's easy, the government's going to be supportive of you? Um, and our colleagues at DIT have played a massive role in this. We're using the embassies around the world to, to point out that Britain is more than open for business. And I suppose we all get a bit frustrated with the media kind of focusing on, on the negative energy of immigration work. It's just nonsense, right? If you're a talented person in any industry, med tech, fintech, energy tech, People creative tech, yeah. we're going to find a way of getting you here. It's, yeah. it's just... Um, so a lot of, there's a lot of self-fulfilling prophecy from, from the... So then, then I would assume, and I hope I'm not wrong, that you see, instead of seeing a, a massive problem only with Brexit, that you see opportunity. As, in, as is the case with everything in life. Everything in life. Yeah. There, there are, yeah, there's, there's some negatives, there's some learnings. Yeah, Maslow's hierarchy of needs explains it fairly well about us as human beings. You, you know, the way you make yourself, the, the way you metamorphosize is always a combination of, of bad things and good things. That's right. just humankind. So, um, yeah, look, none of us, clearly some of us did, because that's why democratically we decided to leave the European Union. But I think most people in business don't see the logic in, in even appearing to, to want more isolation from the world. That said, you know, the positives that have come out of it is, and I've been to 36 countries in the last 20 months talking about this stuff you go and see people in other parts of the world the old commonwealth and if you break that into and think of commonwealth which is what fintech's all about mm -hmm. people are saying welcome back we're really pleased to be talking to you again well particularly in africa the, the great emancipator is is the uh, access that mobile phones give you right so for anyone who has an idea now it's become a lot more possible and, and likely that they'll be able to free themselves. distribution and connectivity which is for women in rural areas, for I mean, these are the, the people who civilize the rest of us. You know, and if they if they are able to emancipate themselves, then the entire community improves. What we know, fact, is that the vast majority of people live in in what what is unfortunately described as the bottom of the pyramid. Yeah, they need, really need to rethink that because you think of the world more as a ripple diagram, and you say it's not about a hierarchy. It's just about people's own personal environment. Yeah. But people who are earning less or have less money than others, we know the repayment rates on loans is far higher in parts of the world where they need it most because they have far more pride. They just want empowerment. Mm -hmm. As soon as you give them an opportunity, they'll spend their lives repaying you compared to an entitled westernized society that goes, if I go bankrupt, I go bankrupt. If I get a CCJ, I get a CCJ. So we know once you give these people access, and they're on a dollar a month, if you right. can somehow give them an advance on their dollar that they can put into a business and reinsure their crop so that when bad weather comes, they can still feed their family. And that all comes from connectivity. And, and if you listen to Tim Berners-Lee, Sam's He's own, coming to South Africa this year. Get, listen yeah. to what he, what he says about the, the dark side of the web and the positive right. side of the web. 
you don't have to believe that singularity is coming soon. I unfortunately do, but I do yeah, too. As, as, as we fuse with acolytes of Ray Kurzweil, <laughs> it's very good stuff, though. And just to, to, to illustrate your, your point in a, in a South African and African context, um, we have the largest unsaturated young market of consumers in the world. And that's got to represent an opportunity to just about everyone. It, and it does it's silly not to take it notes. does if they're identifiable. One of the right. things that Modi has done so well with his digital ID program, rolling yes. out 150 million digital IDs, that's the key to the to, to the safe. Yeah. You've got to be able to identify people easily. Otherwise, you just move a shadow economy of cash to a shadow economy of digital. So one of the things that, that Africa has to look at is what technology do we use to make sure that each individual is known, trusted, respected, KYC, AML. Right. That, that we, we see and we're seeing as in India has a far bigger impact than clever technology that people want to access. To your great point earlier, content follows eyeballs, not the other way around. Right. The consumer's in charge, mm. but you've got to empower the consumer to be present. And in the physical world, you're present because you've got money. I will pay the bearer. In the digital world, you have to know that person is is, is good for what they're saying they're good for. And that, ultimately, then, where this evolves to is sort of a blockchain type environment where that's you end the, up with that's, that's you know, the, no the corruption and, and you end up with people being able to trade with as few impediments as, as, as If they possible. can identify themselves. Yeah. You've still got the, the initial challenges. When you walk into a shop, so if you walk into a shop and you look dangerous and you have a gun the person is wary of you very they have security in place in the digital world you don't have that face-on-face opportunity so digital identity is really really important so to is this, is this something that monetize does monetize i've no i left monetize three four years ago it's now owned by a big american yeah. firm and, and what, what, what was your what was their i don't know anything about business as I, as I sort of explained, it, what, what, what Monetize did was was put the glue in the middle of, of the mobile phone, the mobile operator, oh, right. the bank. Okay. So, so we're that, in that fusion now, stuff. The fusion oh, right, stuff. okay. And so, yes, okay. we had all the tools um, and a lot of the companies that Sam and, and the fund that he's involved in now invest in, they have all the tools. But there's never going to be one company that does it. It's an assembly line. Right. So, so what you need is you need loads of cooperation, cooperation, phrase in fintech that we use a lot is 10% of a big number is a lot better than 100% of nothing so rather than people thinking they can come in and own the whole space and you see this with Gaffer if you look at the big giant tech companies each of whom now has a continent's worth of people communicating with them every day they're going to end up having huge regulatory challenges because they've got to take the responsibility very seriously if you're the first interface to a young African child who's just got their first mobile phone what you give them access to and what you educate them to comes with responsibility. And our Prime Minister spoke about this at the World Economic Forum earlier this year. I thought she spoke brilliantly. And she just said, we can't just horizontally sweep across the world in a borderless way with technology and not expect to be vertically regulated for the services you provide. Mm. Like you can't just be there enabling anyone to do whatever it is. They want. It's not freedom of speech. Of course, we all have freedom of speech and democracy, but we also have rule of law. Right? You can't just have freedom of speech and no rule of law. Right. And, and just like your, your your situation between the mobile operators and the banks, there has to be a, an, an equal amount of both in the equation that eventually makes sense because that you can't have the corporation without the state and the state without the corporation. Right. Well said. Thank you very much. So, um, 
your, your role as an ambassador for business in the UK now. Um, for Pinchaka. Yeah, what does, what does that entail? What, what does it mean a lot of traveling and meeting with people and explaining where Britain is and what you're interested Up in? Up to her. She's, she's the boss. D, DIT send us wherever we need, we need to go. Right. David Cameron put in place the Business Ambassador Program um, and, and Theresa's kind of enhanced it, the current Prime Minister's in, in, enhanced it to be more focused on the the, the UK's emporial days are over, right? So we're not going to be great at everything, but there are four or five industries in fusion, med tech, creative tech, energy tech, agri-tech, you would say, in some, some yes. quarters, um, and, and, and certainly fintech, where the UK can play a, a, a major role. And so we have a, a sort of business ambassadors. I'm the business ambassador for fintech. Right. So my job is to go to parts of the world, explain why London or the UK is a great place to set up a fintech company, help people do it, and also bring in external capital, um, and then do the complete opposite. So if a, a UK fintech company wants to go to South Africa, help them. which I would highly recommend yep. they do, because it's a great fr- thriving market, right. help them. And so on either side of these fintech bridges that we're forming, you have a welcoming committee, which would be people like your good selves, and people sure. like DIT and the equivalents from South African government, mm-hmm. that just say, what are your challenges? We want to help you. Um, right. So, that's, that's really my job. Some business ambassadors are, uh, uh, um, do a lot, some do less. I've, I've had a busy few years. Hopefully they'll tell me to go soon and replace me with someone else. Um, no, I absolutely love it. It's an honour. And because the UK has such incredible embassies, you know, you get to go to these amazing embassies around the world. Go to you go to Tokyo and, and they've got all the cherry blossom in the garden. You go to Rome right. and there's the the aqueduct. And oh wow! It, so and you go to these places and they organise. DIT is brilliant. They organise cocktail parties. They bring all the key business leaders in for you as you're finding mm. the other way. And then it's your job to put forward the case. But it's a competitive environment. Singapore Absolutely. are doing the same. China yeah. are doing the same. India are doing the same. Yeah. America's doing the same. Um, so come March 29th next year, where we form these fintech bridges. They are a stepping stone to new free trade agreements with a load of our partners around the world. We can't sign new free trade agreements until after Brexit. So right. We'll so have to wait for all the regulators to get their act together. Yeah. In some cases. In some cases. Um, while we're having our start, I don't want you to not to neglect your food. Um, rugby. You love rugby. <laughs> played rugby. South Africa is a rugby mad nation. We've been really shit for the longest time. Well, you just beat us in the yes, series. You can't say that. Mm. Just, thanks, mm. mate. I think, you're, I think you're the third best side in the world at the moment. Well, when we try, we had a, a bit of a run of bad luck and bad performance, if you ask me. Well, no, I think, no one's counting until next year. No, I mean, I think South Africa um, ha- always had a style of rugby that made them incredibly dangerous, very, very physical, very, very direct, great speed on the on the outside. But they built phase rugby, they were very good at breaking sides down. And then you get people that come along and want to change the way you play, rather than just make it, it's like, in life we all have a nine out of 10, we're all good at something. And then, and, and our education systems then spend ages trying to teach us to forget about what we're good at. And, and uh, and then move get the move, things with three uh, out of tens it, it, up to a five. Exactly, it's just insane, isn't it? If you think about it, and it's the same. It's the same in sport. Find a, a methodology that really works for you, 
and just keep honing it. The fact that the problem is people look at the All Blacks and go, but they seem to be able to do it all. They can do every single style of rugby. Well, that's just the All Blacks. But I think, you know, England need to play English rugby really well. South Africans need to play South African rugby really well. And that's why when you go to South Africa, as I have, playing South Africa on the home sword is a totally different experience to playing them on, on your... Um, home sword. It's the most intimidating rugby nation you can ever go and play, and even more so than New Zealand. So, sorry, you tried to be welcoming, but no, 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 it's obviously very fan, badly I handled. I didn't talk about the fans. <laughs> the fans are fantastic. But, um, and and Sam, while we're talking, you you mentioned your podcast. So, mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about the the interviews you've done and the kind of stuff you're doing. And maybe we can showcase some of them in South Africa. It's very kind, and, and we'd love to. We're we're actually in the process of forming a partnership with a, a large. South African, African, Sub-Saharan African bank. Um, which I, I won't spoil the surprise just yet. There are only about four, so I'll figure it out eventually. You will, yeah, you definitely will. Um, but, and, and South Africa is increasingly becoming a really, really important region for us, so you know, any help would be hugely appreciated. Sure, of course. Um, but we, you know, we started the podcast, well, if I'm honest, it, it was initially just a bit of fun. You, yeah. can, you can get some of your you know, our great network to open up about things that are both important to us and important to them and it, and it provides insight for us to then act upon if I know that Douglas Flynn the, uh, you know, the, the, the former chairman of HSBC who's on our advisory board um, is particularly keen on I don't know looking at opportunities in Ireland that's something that I can then, then help affect um, but equally it, it allows us to sit down with people that aren't in our immediate network and work out how we can involve them in the journey um, and that's all it is it's just a, a journey we're playing our small role in the evolution of financial services and, and that requires a lot of different people um, from different parts of life after that we had a really really good lunch alistair's main preoccupations may be the good and bad side of what the web can bring us in particular digital identity and making sure that people have a way to remove themselves when necessary from the clutches of the internet. Leaving monetize, obviously being a big part of what he eventually ended up doing to define his own identity, and the incredible role that being a business ambassador for fintech actually entails. The overarching discussion was fascinating enough in its detail, but I thought the personality of the man was probably even more alluring. He's one of those people who listens to you very intently when you're talking, who asks all the right questions. And if any experiences I've had with really smart, really successful people is any indicator, Alistair is 100% a leader in his field.